1: Welcome, everybody. This is Ryan Staley with the Sales and Marketing Built Freedom Podcast. I have a very special guest today. We've got Dale Zawinski. Welcome, Dale.
2: Hey, Ryan. Thanks for inviting me over today. appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, man.
1: Super excited. It was awesome uh, getting a chance to chat with you before we went live. Dale is the Senior Vice President at Smart Action. Yes. Has an amazing story of kind of how he's got to where he's been from today. Um, started off very... Uh, middle-class humble beginnings and then has progressed all the way to senior vice president working with private equity and in addition to some of the groups he has and even leading a charge in terms of a mentoring group so just want to welcome you here today man and really excited to talk with you and would love to hear your story just about how like a little bit about your childhood so everybody that's listening has a better understanding about you and 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 how you kind of got to where you're at today and then take us to
2: present sure man i appreciate it thanks Ryan i appreciate the invite um, I'm glad we got connected through some of the micro communities that we're having. And yeah, I grew up, uh, I grew up in a middle-class family, as you're saying, you know, um, my, it was no nothing extravagant, but uh, I was really trying to get into the next level. Like I knew where my parents were. I was one of the first to go to college in my, uh, in my family and um, actually ended up playing college soccer. So spent a lot of time as a little kid just playing soccer and, and um, working hard. And I think, the interesting part is as I grew through that process, like the hard work that brought me through into getting into school, college and, and playing, you know, uh, soccer in college, it was the, the preface of, of getting all the hard work for where I am today. So it's definitely hard work and grinding and not knowing everything, but just trying to figure it out on the fly. Yeah. Well, it's
1: tough. I mean, it's tough to get to that level and, and, and collegiate sports as well. Soccer is a tough sport, you know. On top of it, very mentally enduring, physically, you know, enduring that, that you got to do that. Yeah. I played, I played football in college at the same time, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's it's definitely tough. There's a lot they expect out of you at that point.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Although it does keep you on the straight and narrow, right? You, you can't get uh, you can't get too sideways when uh, when you're on scholarship and all sorts of other things. So actually, it probably saved me. My first two years in high school were awful. Like I was so bad. Oh, and right. then like I realized that I had to get like a certain score on my SATs to get into play college and I missed it the first time by like twenty points. And I I like almost <laughs> I almost like I was so scared that I wasn't gonna make it. So I really buckled down and then you know, I and mean, that's how you end up getting through everything.
1: Cloud through it, yeah. It, well it's such a weird time. You got SAT, you got A C T. Whatever the, the standardized test is, it's like I have two sisters that are freaking brilliant when it comes to tests. I was not as gifted on the middle child. I don't know if that has something to do with it, but they would, you know, they drop like a, a, 30, a 30 spot, a 36 <laughs> ACP, a 34 spot. I think my first one I got like a 24 or something like that. Yep.
2: Um, I remember, man, I was awful at standardized tests. Awful. <laughs> we are so freaking
1: boring. And I mean, we, we're salespeople as well. So that's <laughs> not going to be one of those things we get super excited
2: about. Um, so how did not sit down to take the test. I was like, I gotta get <laughs> out of here. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, like six, eight hours. So, so tell us a little bit after that, right? So you played, you play all four years in, in college? I did. I
2: played all four years and, um, actually coming out of school, I, I knew I wasn't going to play after that. So I knew it was kind of coming up to an end. And the funny story is at the end of my college career, I kind of looked back and I was like, well, that was fun. But then I was trying to figure out why I picked the college I picked. So, that was you know, <laughs> a reverse story. But um, but it, it ended up good. Actually, um, through college, so my sales journey has been very interesting because I didn't start in sales. I started actually, at, I did coding in college, so I wrote wow. uh, Pascal code and um, Java, and then I got into some .NET, and then when I got outside of... Um, I guess outside of school, I ended up doing implementation work. So I was implementing software, writing SQL scripts, um, doing a lot of stuff. The the time that I ended up becoming very interested in sales was 1999, and the whole Y2K craze and all this kind of stuff. I was working nonstop, like six days a week in Manhattan um, for a, a implementing newspaper software, and the. The project manager on, on the customer was super cool. We got along super well, and she said, um, "You know, can you do this for me? Can you do that for me?" I was like, "Yeah, I can do anything you want, but it's going to cost you more money." And so every time I'd say that to her, like she was like a New York woman, and she just got so mad. And she was like, "I never want to see my salesperson in here ever again. All he wants is his commission." And so, like at that point, I was like, "When I go into sales, because I knew I was going to do it at some point." Like, I'm gonna have happy customers. And I knew that the happy customer part of that was gonna lead to success, and that's kind of how my sales career started. Wow,
1: that's an, I mean, that, that's an interesting progression. From coder in college to eventually sales, yep. you know? So, why don't you, why don't, how, how did that jump happen then? Yeah, keep going with the story, man, we're, we're uh, this just...
2: Yeah, um, well, and then I, I kind of got into sales engineering because it was kind of like the middle ground between sales and sales, uh, -hmm. implementation. And, um, I was doing my company. So I've done six startups in three different countries. And one of the startups got bought by fair corporation, FICO. And I had two sales reps. I was a sales engineer and they were making tons of money. And I felt like I made them all the money and I'm like, that's (laughs) it. I'm going into sales because I'm making you all the money. And, um, you, then you realize there's a lot of other stuff outside of what you see as a sales engineer yeah. um, but that's and then I went to the VP of sales at the time and I was like bill I want I want to get into sales like I want to I want to make all the money and and he said that's fine he goes I think you can do it but I'm gonna throw you in the deep end of the pool and you're either gonna sink or swim and that was really when my sales career kind of started at that point but um yeah the interesting part the thing I had to learn in sales coming out of the tech world was where my boundaries were because I always I could answer all the tech questions. I like go into a conversation and you bring in the IT guys and the IT guys would see a salesperson coming in and they would start trying to overwhelm you with all the IT lingo and mm-hmm. APIs and web services and all that stuff and I would just I would just shake my head and I would just listen to them and, and then I knew like they were just trying to derail it. So actually it worked out from a covert perspective to actually really realize that, hey, you guys really don't you guys aren't really pulling the wool over my eyes. So it was gonna fly.
1: So uh, yeah, well that makes sense. You, you're a sales engineer. You see all these salespeople that work what, thirty hours a week. They're blowing in and out of the office, taking customers out for drinks, making all this money. You're like yeah. yeah, that might be a good idea. Why don't I go down that route? It can't be
2: that hard, right? Yeah, I felt like I felt like every <laughs> conversation, every meeting, like I was because as a sales engineer, like people trust you more. So like the salesperson, and sales engineer, especially back then. I, not really sure at this point, but I would get all the information that they wouldn't give to my salespeople, And then like, we would just give it to the salespeople, and then we'd close the business, but it'd always be like, okay, they'll go talk to them and find out what the real deal is. And then come back. And like, we, we kind of merge it together. So it's kind of funny. That's so funny. Yeah. You know? um, and then I realized that when I was in, when I got into sales, like I had to realize like they weren't giving me the information anymore because now I was a salesman instead of a sales engineer. So it was a, Interesting flip.
1: And for those of you that are, are listening and not watching, Dale just did some air quotes around salesman to so say, so you understand the context of what he was saying. Yeah, he he, he wasn't the friend anymore; and he was now the uh, the enemy or the frenemy, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so, so talk to us about that, man, with your journey. So you jumped in the the deep end and you had to sink or swim. And spoiler alert: I, I think I think Dale was able to swim because he's with us today. So so walk us how that happened. What did you do? How did you make that happen?
2: I, I think it was just like because of the way I grew up and how I had to grind and figure things out, like mm-hmm. I had good mentors. So I think a lot of people that I um, worked with throughout my career, I just became good friends with. So it was kind of the handshake of the network that you do versus now it's so remote and all those things that are happening on social media and mm-hmm. micro communities, but it was more building my network, I always tried to align myself with people that were successful. So um, I think when you understand what good looks like, then you can actually replicate it. And so um, aligning myself, getting good mentors, good conversations. I mean, the, the, the two reps that I was working with at Fair Isaac were like the two top reps in our group. And making tons of money. So, and, and they liked me because I had made them a lot of money. So I was always able to tap them and have conversations. So I think the networking piece of it is super important. And then I think it's all about caring and delivering value. It's If you have happy customers and raving fans and, and you're, as a salesperson, you're, you're selling with integrity and you're delivering what you say you're going to deliver, you're going to be fine.
1: That's, I mean, that's huge, executing. I literally, like I, I told you before, I was talking I to Tony and he was talking about expectation inflation, you know, by, and, and what happens with that with customers. And he's like, it's it, it basically the, the net net of it is, and is he was talking, it's like, you don't want to over promise and under deliver, yeah. but on top of it too, you don't want to under promise and over deliver. You want to get it right there because then every time you might get a short term spike from that. Under promising, over delivering, but then every single time the customer expects you to blow it out of the water, and it becomes unsustainable after a while.
2: That's that's such a good point, Ryan. Because you know everyone was oh under over deliver and under you know and hit everything under budget, but you're right. I mean, at some point, like you're going to put yourself in a really bad situation, and then that one time is going to be where the customer has his job on the line, right? Mm-hmm. I think as salespeople, we forget that. When people are selecting you or having conversations, like they they're potentially putting their jobs on the line, especially when you're talking about startup companies. Like there's, you know, all these startup companies they're taking you know a, a risk on, and and that's not lost when I have conversations with people. Like I really want them to be successful, and so I think that's important.
1: Yeah, that's uh, I that's really critical, and that's why I think you know, I talked to a lot of sales folks, I talked to a lot of sales leaders like you, and. One of the things that's, that gets brought up, you know, we were talking about, I was leading a discussion around closing and people are like, how do we get past the no decision? Hmm. You know, and, and you, you nailed it on the head right there. That no decision occurs because people are afraid they're going to lose their job if they make the wrong decision. And so that's where you see yeah. that with like the big gnome, you know, the big name competitor that is clearly doing a terrible job because it's less risk for them. Would you you agree,
2: disagree, or what do you think? I I totally think, and I I think the no decision, I think the problem that we're having as a sales world, like in the sales world, like we follow the sales process. So you first do this and then you do that and then you do this. Mm -hmm. Um, But the reality is we never, a lot of people aren't mapping it back to the buying decision. So Mm -hmm. what's the buyer's process? And I think, and this is a generalization, I think salespeople in general, have a hard time asking questions that they may not like the answer to. So it may be a no question, but it may be, do you have a budget or what is your decision process? And so just by asking some of those questions, you're gonna get the real answer. And sometimes you don't want the real answer, so you're not gonna ask the hard questions. And and I see that over and over again in a lot of um, selling cycles. And so, you get into a place you get into no decisions or you lose it at the end or you know they're just not going to progress with you so i think asking hard questions or asking the questions that you may not like the answers to here's the good news here's the spoiler alert. like if you know the answer early either you can get out of the deal like and not waste your time and waste everybody's time or you can figure out a way to get around the objection like maybe the objection is easy enough to get around but if you let it snowball towards the end, like it just becomes such a big objection you can't get around it anymore.
1: Yeah, I think you nailed it down the head right there because that's the thing. I mean, if you, it's, it's not just going to disappear. The right. objection is, this isn't going to disappear if you ignore it. Right. You know? So, so that's, I, I think there's some, some great knowledge there. So what would you say are, are like two or three really great questions or hard questions that you coach your team on to really understand or coach other leaders on to really understand like what hard questions would you ask or recommend for people to? Yeah,
2: so so there's two things around that. Um, I'll give you the questions and I'll give you a framework that I use. Okay. So um, the questions that I, I usually ask are, you know, what does your decision making process look like? And inevitably, what people say is they'll give you some like some like way off answer, like oh well, I'm signing it or like, and so they'll give you like these really Vague answers, and so you you almost have to. It's almost like when you're when you're young, when you're young children. If you have children, they ask you like the three whys. Like you tell them to go do something, and they're like why, and then you have to like give them another example, and then they say why. Like you have to dig a couple of, of deep um, levels deep. So from a framework perspective, what I'll do is build out what I call a joint engagement plan, a mm-hmm. jet. and in that joint engagement plan. It goes all the way to um, providing value for the customer, but between where you are today and where the value ends up, the customer seeing the value, there's a bunch of steps that happen in between those those pieces and so this is a forcing mechanism for the sales rep and the customer to own what that buying process is because I guarantee you the sale the buyer probably doesn't know what their buying process is as much as you don't know what their buying process is. And so if you can make your buyers look like the hero and ask the, ask the right questions inside of their organization, then it'll go much easier. Like, for example, we know most of the time we're going to get pulled into um, Info, InfoSec. So there's going to be security audit, we're mm-hmm. touching people's private data. So um, we know we're going to be involved in it. So in the joint engagement plan, I just put a line for InfoSec. And whether we hit that or not, that's uh, telling the customer that we know that we're going to get stuck in this at some point. And if you don't think so, we should go at least go ask the question because if we get uh, security audits at the end of the sales cycle, it could push you out another two, three months. And so why not find out up front? And so the joint engagement plan is just uh, tell me what the buying process is. Okay, next week you're going to do this and the week after we're going to do that and then you just you allow the customer to own that process with you, and that engagement plan is exactly what it means. It's like you have you have action items as a salesperson, and the buyer has action items as a buyer.
1: I think that's great. And it really, what you're what you're doing, it sounds like you're coaching the people. Just to sum it up for for you, the listener, is really that you know, you're covering the well. You you basically shepherd people through. That buying process tons of times over, maybe, maybe 20, maybe 40, maybe hundreds of times over. And that buyer's never really truly been through that experience themselves. Yeah. Because there's so many different technologies out there that overlap and change the way that people buy and whose budgets they are. So it's like redesigning things. So basically you're acting as the guide to walk them through that. And then when that happens, you're covering the objections before they happen. So then when it gets to that point in the sales process, it doesn't push your deal out another two or three months. I think it's great now.
2: Yeah, it, it, it's not foolproof, but it is a way to get hard questions answered. And it's actually a good way. You, the way you want to do is, you really got to find a good coach inside of your, your opportunities. Mm-hmm. And like make it a win for them. And if you make it a win for them, they'll, they'll be your champion inside the account. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think you, that's-
2: it's uncomfortable for salespeople. Trust me, my team, my team, like when I say you should share it with the customer, they're like, What? I, I shouldn't share it with the customer. I'm like, Yeah, no, you should share it with the customer because if you don't, if they don't own it, like if you own it, if the sales rep owns it, it's all over. If the customer owns it, then you know you have an opportunity. I just think there's so much bad pipeline out in the world mm-hmm. that if we clean up our pipeline and we actually get real with ourselves, then we'll spend our time in the right places to build more pipeline. I I believe pipeline cures all evils, from sales to marketing to operations to engineering, because then you can start planning. I like that. That might even be the name of the, the podcast. <laughs> pipeline cures all evils. All of it. I, I truly believe it. No, it's not just pipeline. It's like quality pipeline, right? So, but a that's a better title. That's a good title. You're ruining my title now. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. So better pipeline. Here's a- well, quality pipeline. You know, there's <laughs> like you know when you come into a sales leadership role, there's two things that get really weird. One is, and you don't expect this because you're all like pumped up, like ah, I got my first, like whatever it is. One is like the expectations are totally off. Like forget mm-hmm. about the expectations, and the pipeline you told you're told that you really have, you don't have. Like. Those are just two truths that should just be told to every VP of sales. Like, like, yeah, you have 10 million in pipeline. You really have like four and a half, right? So (laughs) So the first thing, you know, you kind of have to do is like go through the pipeline and see your team and go through all of those pieces. But if you really truly have a solid pipeline that has actionable steps to get through to close business, then engineering can hire the right people to engineer it. Operations can hire the right people to project manage it. Marketing can understand, you know, the levers are are all there to actually execute properly.
1: I think that's great, and yes, I I have seen that where you think you got ten million in pipe, it's like four. Um,
2: I, I think it's I think that should be a disclaimer for every so every per every sales leader that's going into something, mm-hmm. they should know that. And and it gets you know the dirty secret is you know. When you go to get funding and go get all these equity things, like you gotta it seems like they pump up the pipeline or they pump up something and it doesn't get dug into enough and then all of a sudden like you have this huge number that you're trying to hit and it's like not valid anymore. So you're like, Okay, well and then you have I think I saw the number like an average VPS sales has like an eighteen month, like just like that's their average tenure. Yep.
1: Yeah, it's it's crazy. Months. Isn't that crazy? crazy. I, yeah, I saw that. And well, yeah, people are putting lipstick on the pig so that they could sell the company at higher valuation. And then the after effect is it sucks because <laughs> there's like unrealistic expectations, which leads to compounding massive quota increases. And so, yeah, it's, it gets really ugly quick. So so Dale, one of the, as a follow-up now, with your, your kind of co-authoring your, your plan, I think that's great. There's a lot of ways you can execute on that. What what's the result you've seen from that? Like, tell us tell us a quick story about when you've done that, and then how that's manifested itself in a real, tangible dollars, just so people could could wrap their head around the whole thing.
2: Yeah, so I, I think there's two things. So when when you do it properly and you get people on board, mm-hmm. I think it actually can grow your deal size because then you can actually talk about additional uh, uh, projects that may be running, and so and you get viability from the customer so um, actually we're running through one right now so right now we're going through with a customer and um, you know we're kind of near the end of the process and um, it's probably going to be a $350,000 ARR deal and but we're shepherding it through because we just had a call with all the IT guys we just had a call with the president and we aligned our CEO with the president and and the rep shared the joint engagement plan. Then we built out the the PowerPoint deck. And then what we did at the end of the presentation we just gave was we um, gave them a timeline. We said this is what it this is what the timeline looks like. You know, if we sign at this point and we start doing transition, and then we need API documents and like, and then we said you know we'll be live by in March. And I think the other thing that these plans do for you is it brings um, Expediency to your deal because Mm -hmm. everyone like if you're doing emails or conversations, um, a lot of people will say, "Oh, well, I need to have this live in Q1 of next year." And then, okay, so let's put Q1 as your go-live date. Value date is you know six months past that, and -hmm. let's walk back all the things that we have to do as a as a vendor and you have to do as a customer. And all of a sudden, you realize like you should have signed it last week, and so you have to be careful because I think like salespeople can manipulate things, but I think if you're realistic and you've sold with integrity at this point, you can have that conversation with the buyer and say, look, at, like, here are all the things that we need to do. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, we have Thanksgiving in the middle and we have Christmas in the middle and, like, you know, you guys have a shutdown. Like, when's your IT shutdown happening? So you can ask really intelligent questions. And so I think it just provides transparency. Like, for me in sales, transparency both externally and internally are some of the most important things you'll ever do. And so I think it just, and, and then what happens from there is we'll have a great implementation because everyone, all the expectations are aligned. Mm-hmm. Like where things fail, whether it's your personal relationships, your you know business relationships, your sales is when expectations aren't aligned.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. It yeah, goes back
1: to what we were talking about.
2: And I think you nailed it on the head of
1: using kind of that, I call it like a reverse close. It's like a the customer closes themselves because they're like, okay, well you want to implement this in let's say Q4 right now. It's like, okay. So this is what happens on our end in order to execute on a week by week, what do we need to execute? What do you need to execute on your end to kind of back into that? Is there anything that needs to happen here? Do we need to meet with this person? And then you it's almost like managing a project
2: plan with them for yeah, them. It is. Work. It is. and, and guess what? If they miss a date, like, okay, you need to get me, you know, the signed off whatever by next week, and they miss that date, well, now your entire, like, project needs to move out. And mm-hmm. they don't understand, like, in our case, if you miss a week, you miss, may miss three because we have a development cycle like we're running on the other side, right? So, you know, and I, once again, it sets expectations, and it doesn't put your operations and engineering team in a bad place. Excellent. Well, hey,
1: man, it was, it's been awesome having you on today. I think there's some, some amazing nuggets. I, you know, Quality pipeline cures all evils. We got the co-authored plan to speed up the sales process. And I hope you end up finishing that deal off that you mentioned. So where mm-hmm. can people find you online if they want to connect with you, if they want to learn more about what's going on with Dale? I know you put a yeah. lot of great content out on LinkedIn. I've seen some of it myself. So can you just yeah. share that with
2: everybody? So you can you can connect with me on um, thesaleschangeagent.com. I have a site out there where I'm putting a bunch of my content out. Um, you can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, but all my all my um, uh, social media is on thesaleschangeagent.com, and we'd love to connect. Love to just shoot it. I uh, it's funny. I, I enjoy these conversations, but I almost enjoy the the pre-conversations as much as the uh, the regular <laughs> conversations. Yeah, so. uh, it was awesome getting to know you, man. So. Thanks.
1: Yeah, it was great having you on. And so I'd uh, like to say thank you to everybody for listening today and look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thanks, man. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you. What's up, everybody? This is Ryan Staley, and you are listening to the Sales and Marketing Built Freedom Podcast, where we share with you the underground ninja skills and tactics that the top sales and marketing leaders are using create financial and lifestyle freedom and the question that everybody is asking is how do i create financial and lifestyle freedom for me that is the question and this show is the answer